And now to introduce today's speaker, we are joined by Dr. Hagen Kennecke, a medical oncologist and medical director of GI oncology at Providence Cancer Institute, as well as an associate member of the Child's Research Institute in Portland, Oregon. Dr. Kennecke has worked extensively within the GI oncology research community, is a member of the U.S. National Cancer Institute GI Steering Committee and the immediate past chair of the Rectal Anal Cancer Task Force. Dr. Kennecke works passionately to improve the treatment, education, and outcomes of those affected by colorectal and neuroendocrine tumors. We are absolutely delighted uh, to have him join us today at our Grand Rounds community. Thank you, Dr. Kennecke. Wonderful. Uh, thank you, Laura, and it's a pleasure to have the privilege to do uh, Grand Rounds today. I joined Providence Cancer Institute in March of 2021. Uh, previously, I was at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, where I spent most of my career. And then I was in Seattle at Virginia Mason before that at the Cancer Institute. So it's a real honor to be here. And I look forward to meeting everyone in person as that becomes more possible. I'd like to talk today about uh, colorectal cancer and, and some updates. There's been a lot of changes in this disease site and, and so it's a timely topic and my disclosures are as listed. So the objectives today I'd like to cover is to first to discuss the role of colorectal cancer screening. Number two, to understand how circulating tumor DNA is changing the practice of colorectal cancer. Number three, to consider organ preservation for rectal cancer and lastly, to review new ways to give chemotherapy and radiation. Um, first, I will ask a question and ask what age should we start screening for average risk colorectal cancer? And I will not proceed until I see the correct answer somewhere in a text box. Or a answer. Mm -hmm. There's always a slight delay coming through and we invite anybody to go ahead and put your answer into our q and I will so, read them. Yes, the options are A, 50, B, H, 40, and C, H, 45. Well, so far we have a vote for 50, one for 45, and another for 45. Okay, 45 wins. That is correct. So as recently as 2017, the U.S. Multi-Society Task Force recommendation was to begin screening at the age of uh, 50 and 40 for African Americans due to a documented increased incidence in that population. In 2018, the American Cancer Society initially recommended to start screening at the age of 45, which was a qualified recommendation. And in 2021, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommended to start at age 45, which it is today. This change has been driven predominantly by two things, an increased incidence of patients getting diagnosed with colorectal cancer less than the age of 50. And overall, we've seen the median age of diagnosis of colorectal cancer decrease from 72 
in 2001 to, to, uh, a, uh, to 66 in more recent years in 2015-2016. The screening modalities that patients may choose from are as follows. The US Multi-Society Task Force rec uh, classifies first-tier tests as <clears throat> colonoscopy and <clears throat> fit testing for patients who decline colonoscopy. And second-tier tests are considered CT colonography, stool-based DNA testing, and flexible sigmoidoscopy. The U.S. Preventive Service Task Force is a little bit more pragmatic and acknowledging that not all patients uh, want to do a colonoscopy or even fit and have a more pragmatic recommendation to just say, just screen as long as patients do one of these modalities. As we do know that the compliance with screening is only 66% currently in the United States. <clears throat> in 2021, uh, the groundwork was laid for a large Providence screening study to address the disparities in screening, particularly among minority groups, including African-American groups that are intrinsically at higher risk. In this intervention, a large group of households within the areas that Providence serves are uh, will be targeted with a community campaign intervention, which are chat teams that work with patients to help them get screened and connect and navigate through follow-up care. And then the key outcome measure will be population-based screening rates before and after the community campaign. This, uh, this team to set up this screening program is incredibly multi-specialty. Uh, uh, multi, uh, we have uh, senior leaders, uh, epidemiologists, uh, patient av advocates, and uh, gastroenterology all are represented, as well as this, this large effort as is being done in the collaboration with a large grant from both Providence as well as Stand Up to Cancer. When to stop screening is an important question. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommends a discussion to stop screening anytime from age 76 to 85, recalling that the screening studies that we that have been published really uh, they were all included patients from the age of 50 to 70. So we're extending that age to 75 generally, or sometimes even longer. The U.S. Multi-Society uh, Task Force recommends uh, that uh, screening can be stopped at age 75 or when life expectancy is less than 10 years, and they've had adequate negative screening. So overall, the discussion about screening beyond age 75 is a, a discussion with the patient considering the benefits including the prior screening history and results colorectal cancer risk as well as discussion of the risks of the uh, screen, screening modality as well as the patient's risk for malignancy and comorbidity where are we currently with colorectal cancer in 2022 in terms of mortality, colorectal cancer is the number two cause of cancer death. Surgery remains a standard part of the therapy. And for patients with rectal cancer, 
approximately 25% of them require a permanent ostomy. Rectal cancer specifically is characterized by significant additive toxicity when radiation and surgery are both given. And patients with advanced metastatic disease have an median survival of two years when given chemotherapy and a minority are cured. Cancer, uh, cancer, uh, colon cancer risk factors include the consumption of red and processed meat, which is a, a WHO class one carcinogen. Race plays a role. We know that some groups, particularly African-American, have a higher incidence. Obesity, diets that are low in fiber and high in fat. And there's numerous extensive literature describing the role of gut flora, and we don't know whether that is a cause or an effect of the malignancy. Overall, the colon can be divided into the right and left colon, the ascending colon on your left, and two-thirds of the transverse colon is considered the right colon and is embryologically derived from the foregut, whereas the, I'm sorry, the, uh, derived from the midgut, whereas the last part of the transverse colon, the descending colon, sigmoid and rectum, are the left colon with the last 16 centimeters traditionally defined as the rectum. We know that genomically, we consider the left and right colon quite different. And this really has been defined at the genomic level initially and through the TCGA consortium, where we generally see that left-sided malignancies are non-hypermutated. You can see here that the majority of uh, left side of, uh, of non-hypermutated patients are rectal, uh, left colon, and right colon, whereas the hypermutated malignancies, BRAF mutated and mismatch repair, those are predominantly in the right side of the colon, which is a reflection of their difference in tumor biology. In terms of family history, we know that the majority of patients with colorectal cancer do not have a family history. There are sporadic causes, predominantly driven by age, which is a major risk factor for developing this malignancy and other risk factors as mentioned. Patients with an inherited mismatch repair defect, also known as Lynch syndrome or HNPCC, account for about two to 3% of colorectal cancers. There's a large subgroup of patients, approximately 10 to 20%, depending on the literature, that have a strong family history of colon cancer, but no germline genomic abnormalities. And that's likely because the, the genomic risk for colon cancer extends beyond a single gene point mutation, and we just don't have the gene signatures that uh, to, to look for that can characterize these patients and their risk. Pathology is still required for diagnosis. And, and histology by light microscopy is a key part to uh, characterize the carcinomas. These are um, uh, colon cancers are carcinomas which are of epithelial cell origin. Uh, they are generally adenocarcinomas of grade one to four. 
It may be adenosquamous in histology or neuroendocrine carcinomas. Required immunohistochemical markers include markers for mismatch repair and defective mismatch repair, DMMR, is the same terminology as microsatellite instability high. And the markers we look for, for are absence of MLH1, MSH2 and 6, and PMS2. Any one of those four markers uh, absence by immunohistochemistry compared to normal tissue uh, points to a defect in mismatch repair, which may be at the germline level or at the tumor level. Other markers that we use to characterize site of origin and confirm site of origin for this malignancy are CK7, CK20, CDX2. There are multiple standard genomic markers, including RAS and RAF, which are generally ordered later by oncology. Next, I'd like to talk about how circulating tumor DNA is changing the practice of colorectal cancer. So overall, cell-free DNA includes circulating tumor DNA and can be tested and identified in peripheral blood. The, these, the DNA arrives there through apoptosis, necrosis, and secretion, which releases DNA. And tumor DNA can be detected by identifying point mutations, copy number alterations, rearrangements, methylation changes, or exosomal DNA. And these are generally isolated from the plasma when you spin down the tubes. And circulating tumor DNA is a tiny fraction of all the cell-free DNA that is found. It generally represents less than 1%. The ctDNA is characterized by a short half-life measured in minutes to hours, which is shorter than cell-free DNA. Current approved applications for blood cell-free DNA and, or circulating tumor DNA that you may be more familiar with than I uh, include fetal genotyping using maternal blood, transplant rejection monitoring, genotyping of advanced cancers, detection of minimal residual disease after cancer surgery, and there's even a, a blood test in dogs currently to detect malignancies in dogs. So how can we use ctDNA applications in colorectal cancer? They have potential and established roles in early detection, early diagnosis, the risk stratification of early stage disease in uh, terms of minimal residual disease assays after surgery, disease monitoring for recurrence, and in the advanced setting, circulating tumor DNA assays can be used as a surrogate endpoint of response to therapy and detect resistant mechanisms that are accumulating in the malignancy over time and as a result to exposure to cancer therapy. There's two major different types of ctDNA assays, those that are tumor-informed versus those that are tumor-non-informed. The tumor-informed assays are generally used for patients with established known malignancies. And in that setting, we look for somatic mutations in the known tumor through whole genome and exome sequencing, and then look for those mutations in the patient's blood. And this technology is applied 
in the minimal residual disease detection that I'll describe at the end of the presentation and to look at to monitor treatment response. Tumor non-informed assays, on the other hand, also look for somatic mutations. They look for methylation changes and fragmentomics that are present in the blood of patients with malignancies and are characteristics of specific malignancies. These assays can be used for early detection of malignancies as well as diagnosis of patients with a suspected malignancy, but the origin is not yet determined. So here are some examples of the different assays. I'll start with the multi-cancer early detection assays, which one of the first on the market has been the Galeri assay. And this is a study describing the validation of that assay, which was published last year in Annals of Oncology. So what happened here is we took a large group of patients with known malignancies of different types, and then their blood was drawn and the objective was to determine the ability of the assay, the Galeri assay, to detect and confirm the tumor. Overall, the sensitivity of the blood test was 54.9%, which increased with the advanced stage of the malignancy. So for stage one, it was 18% overall, for stage two, 43, stage three, 81%, and stage four, 93%. False positives were less than 7%, and the tissue of origin uh, correctly predicted was correctly predicted in 93%. In other words, the assay was able to predict whether a metastasis in the liver was related to a breast cancer originally versus a colon cancer. And this is essential when it comes to assigning treatment and therapy. This is what the assay looked like in GI cancers, specifically for colorectal cancer. There was 206 patients in that large study. And again, a, a similar pattern of increased sensitivity with increased stage. This assay is commercially available, but it is not yet FDA approved for screening or detection of malignancies. So ongoing studies are being done to further develop these assays and understand how they can help us with screening and diagnosis. And one, most of these studies are quite large because they're looking at a, a small signal, a small proportion of well patients with, the, with malignancies. So the, the Galeri the UK randomized trial takes 140,000 patients that are asymptomatic with no known cancer diagnosis and no past cancer diagnosis. And the patients are randomized to a control group, which is either general medical care or having a, the Galeri blood test. If that test is positive, the result is shared and investigations commence. If the result is negative in this trial, the result is not shared so as not to bias against a negative test and to minimize potential harm from using the assay to to um, guide therapy when we don't yet know what its value is. Uh, a, another study was recently published in 2021, which was a large study of nearly 7,000 
patients using the Galeri assay, which took asymptomatic patients at average risk or high risk for cancer. Overall, 1.5% of them had a documented cancer of any type. The positive predictive value of the test was 45%, and it was 83% accurate for site of origin. Another MCAD assay that uh, has been developed is the Garden Shield assay, and this is the assay validation results for, for the Garden Shield. It uses slightly different technology than the Galeri and uses somatic alter alterations, methylation pa patterns, and fragmentomics. And specifically for the colorectal cancer subtype subgroup in this validation study, the assay was sensitive to 90% for patients with stage 1-2 colorectal malignancies. Uh, total sample size was 692. It was um, sensitive at 87% sensitivity for stage 3-4 and 90% sensitivity overall. The uh, tissue of Oregon, Oregon, sorry, Oregon accuracy was 99%. The assay became commercially available this month, but is not yet FDA approved for screening or diagnosis of colon cancer. Finally, the MCAD assays are being explored in terms of value for diagnosis. And again, this is another uh, study looking at the Galeri assay. And as you can imagine, having a blood test that differentiates between different, different malignancies and can confirm of whether or not a patient that is symptomatic and has a potential malignancy is and does indeed have malignancy can be very helpful and that is what's being explored in the in this study so overall the the presence of ctdna assays can be summarized as follows there are three major types the MCADs, the multi-cancer early detection assay that have applications in terms of screening and diagnosis. These applications are not yet approved by the FDA. There are minimal residual disease assays, which assess post-operative risk and response to therapy. And these are applications that are FDA approved currently, and I will cover these at the end of the presentation. And finally, there's liquid tumor biopsy assays, which we currently have used for a number of years to for tumor genotyping assessment of resistance and to guide therapy. Next, I'd like to talk about um, the role of organ uh, sparing therapy for rectal cancer. So rectal cancer therapy is uh, characterized by trimodality therapy. Uh, the traditional sandwich is uh, patients are treated with chemoradiation or radiation, followed by surgery and followed by post-operative chemotherapy. More recently, we are offering patients total neoadjuvant therapy with either chemotherapy followed by radiation or the reverse sequence of chemo, chemo radiation followed by chemo and then treating them with surgery. This approach is called total neoadjuvant therapy. Milestones in rectal cancer therapy include 
a documentation that patients should be treated with radiation before surgery, which was established in 1997 and 2001 by the Swedish and the Dutch, respectively, in large trials, documenting a significant reduction in the risk of local regional relapse. In 2004, a study, a large study in Germany, documented that chemoradiation before surgery is more effective than chemoradiation after surgery in terms of local regional control, and that since has become the standard of therapy, and we'll look at a study that documents its application in the United States. In 2014, the uh, British group established the superiority of MRI staging as the superior modality for assigning tumor stage for rectal cancer prior to surgery. This is particularly important as we know that stage 2-3 rectal cancer requires preoperative therapy with radiation and, and or chemotherapy, and earlier stage 1 malignancy should not be treated and proceed directly with, to surgery. In 2020 and, and beyond, we are expecting studies that establish whether or not we can avoid radiation for some patients with rectal cancer, as we know that the radiation can cause significant toxicities. This is an overview of rectal cancer therapy in the United States between 2006 and 2016 in a study we recently published. And it looks at all patients in the United States in the NCDB database, which covers 60% of US hospitals, diagnosed with stage 2-3 rectal cancer and treated with trimodality therapy. Overall, during the time period of the study, there was a significant decrease in offering post-operative chemoradiation, which was moved in favor to pre-operative therapy, such that the majority of patients by the end of 2016 received neoadjuvant therapy of some sort. And total neoadjuvant therapy of radiation chemo and chemotherapy, all given before surgery, was offered in a subgroup of patients. Overall, as a result of the changes in treatment, we did see a migration into a lower tumor, pathologic tumor stage. The, on the left describes a graph of both clinical stage two and clinical stage three rectal cancer malignancies. And if you particularly focus on stage three, you can see that over time, the, um, there was a migration to a lower clinical stage, uh, lower pathologic stage, sorry, which uh, is indicated in, in the yellow and uh, lighter orange colors. And, and overall, we looked at the survival and risk of mortality throughout the time period, and there was a 23% reduction in risk of mortality throughout the time period between 2006 and 2016. The American Cancer uh, the American College of Surgeons established a rectal cancer accreditation program, and in June of 2021, Providence became the first hospital in the Pacific Northwest to achieve national accreditation for rectal cancer therapy. And one of the 
issues with re rectal cancer therapy is 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 twofold really it's it's the loss of a rect uh, of the rectum and 25% require a bag and the issues with toxicity as a result of requiring surgery and radiation for patients with, uh, treated for rectal cancer this results in major lars which is called low anterior rectal cancer syndrome in about 50% of patients Whereas in the baseline population, we know that LARS is present in about 12.2% of people. So a more than a threefold increase in issues with, with fecal incontinence, constipation, and irritable bowel syndrome as a result of standard ther therapy with chemotherapy and radiation for rectal cancer patients. So this really has led to a drive, which a lot of this has been driven by patients for organ preservation and the strategy as in a strategy known as watch and wait. And the concept overall is to avoid surgery in patients whose cancer completely responds to chemotherapy and radiation. This is particularly interesting for low tumors when a permanent bag is needed. It, however, it does require intensive follow-up such that patients that have a complete response to therapy are at risk of the tumor progressing and do require intensive follow-up every with Q4 monthly endoscopy and Q6 monthly pelvic MRI for the first two years. And surgery is only done if there's evidence of recurrence. As such, the in NCCN guidelines, the role of total neoadjuvant therapy and watch and wait has become a standard option for patients treated with rectal cancer. And in this, in this framework, patients with stage 2-3 rectal cancer are treated with induction chemotherapy followed by radiation, long or short course, or the reverse sequence. They are restaged, and if they achieve complete clinical response, a CCR, they, they may pursue a, a non-operative management approach. This is the most recent evidence of the success of the stra strategy published this month in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, which documents a prospective randomized phase two trial of organ preservation in patients with rectal adenocarcinoma with, treated with total neoadjuvant therapy. And in this trial, a little bit of background, patients were random, all patients were uh, received total neoadjuvant therapy and had the option of watch and wait. However, they were treated with two different schedules of therapy, either induction chemotherapy followed by radiation, which is in blue, or consolidation chemotherapy given after radiation, but both before surgery. So in both of these uh, uh, groups, patients, a significant proportion of patients was able to avoid surgery, which was higher in patients that received a consolidation chemotherapy approach where radiation was given first and chemotherapy is given second, followed by the consideration of surgery or watch and wait. The other uh, finding of the study was that there was no apparent harm of delayed surgery and the graph to the right describes outcomes of patients who received a total radical surgery uh, for their rectal tumor at the end of 
total neoadjuvant therapy because their tumors didn't downstage compared to patients in red that whose tumor experienced regrowth later on during the observation periods. And there was no significant difference in disease-free survival between those groups. There's also a great interest in organ preservation surgery with the use of transanal surgery in stage one rectal cancer. Transanal surgery involves full thickness tumor excision and is performed by special specialized colorectal surgeons. Historic trials have demonstrated a 50 to 70% organ preservation rate in when patients are treated with chemoradiation followed by excision. However, this approach has not generally become standard because it was associated with significant radiation toxicity. We recently reported a phase two trial that looked at transanal surgery after induction chemotherapy, which points to a potentially an alternate strategy that may be used in this patient population. This was a smaller study of patients with predominantly stage one rectal cancer, which was treated with three months of chemotherapy, followed by endoscopic excision of the tumor and observation for patients that achieved a downstaging to either a complete pathologic response or a near complete response to T0 or T1. Overall, a total of 79% achieved organ sparing with that strategy and it's being investigated further. So this is an example of images that you know, we see in patients that are treated with early rectal cancers and induction chemotherapy. We see similar findings in patients treated with chemoradiation. So overall, you can see an ulcerating malignant mass at the top of the uh, images. And after, in this case, chemotherapy, you see a residual tumor bed that is then excised and closely evaluated for any residual malignancy. Another strategy for organ sparing is the use of immunotherapy, and this is in defective mismatch repair rectal cancer. This is uh, a rare finding in less than 3% of patients with rectal cancer, and the majority of those have a germline defect in mismatch repair, which is, as you recall, HNPCC or Lynch syndrome. And you can see that the majority of patients with, a, uh, with rectal cancer that uh, is defective in mismatch repair, 84% have a germline mutation identified. And, uh, current findings have increased, have found that immunotherapy may cure most of these early tumors. And a study, a recent study has shown that neoadjuvant PD-1 blo blockade for patients with stage two, three DMMR rectal cancer, 11 of 11 achieved a complete clinical response to therapy and so far have not proceeded to surgery. There's, there are other prospective trials looking at the role of immunotherapy followed by short course radiation to achieve organ sparing and complete clinical response in rectal malignancies. 
So overall, uh, conclusions for uh, the care of rectal cancer. Rectal cancer has become increasingly complex, as you uh, as you can see. There's a high degree of uh, treatment toxicity and increasing numbers of treatment options. The Treatment is highly multidisciplinary. We've really become used to very large and long tumor boards to not only evaluate preoperative stage to ensure that we have the optimal therapy before surgery, but also looking at patients that have received TNT with total neoadjuvant therapy, and then we assess their response on MRI and endoscopy. So this really requires a large team of surgeons of bad onks, med onks, uh, uh, diagnostic imaging specialists that are uh, trained in how to read rectal MRIs. There is evidence in rectal cancer for treatment de-escalation as well as organ sparing. And there's an increasing practice of rectal cancer patients to be referred to centers of expertise, which is uh, somewhat different than colon cancer, much of which is treated in more uh, locally uh, closer to home. Um, next, um, I'd like to review new ways to give chemotherapy. So for, we talked a lot about rectal cancer. I'll focus now on colon cancer therapy. The general paradigm for colon cancer remains surgical resection, uh, where patients are generally offered laparoscopic surgery and they have a short duration of hospital stay. Postoperatively, patients are con uh, considered for chemotherapy. Stage one uh, colon cancer patients that are node negative and have tumors that only invade into but not through the muscularis propria have a very good prognosis and do not require any further chemotherapy or even surveillance. Patients with stage two high uh, rectal, sorry, colon cancers are offered consideration of chemotherapy only if they have pathological high risk factors and they are offered surveillance. Stage three or node positive colon cancers are offered standard adjuvant chemotherapy. So the adjuvant chemotherapy milestones are as, as follows, uh, back in the 1990s, it was established that fluorouracil intravenously given for six to 12 months significantly decreases the risk of recurrence by about 40% in node positive stage three colon cancer. In 2004, a, a large French trial documented that the addition of oxaliplatin to fluorouracil and leucovorin in a regimen called Folfox, given for six months, decreases recurrence by a total of 55% in patients with stage three colon cancer node positive. There's been a, a large group of trials, including a total of 12,000 patients internationally was reported in 2017, documenting that three months of full FOX is non-inferior to giving six months of therapy for most non-high-risk stage three colon cancer and has really become the standard for patients that don't have a high nodal burden or a, an advanced T stage. There are ongoing trials 
pursuing the role of circulating tumor DNA to assign patients to post-operative chemotherapy. And I'm going to go over those in a little bit more detail. In the post-operative setting, after patients have been treated curatively for colorectal cancer, the standard is tumor surveillance with imaging and tumor markers. This has seen a dramatic improvement in sensitivity as a result of ctDNA. In the past, imaging modalities like chest X-ray could detect only up to uh, a billion cells, which is approximately one centimeter uh, diameter lesions. CT scans have a, a much greater sensitivity, but still require an estimated 10 million cells to see based on CT imaging, whereas minimal residual disease assays may detect as few as 10,000 cancer cells in the body. So this is the concept of minimal residual disease using ctDNA in a post-operative setting. And really, it looks for the presence of cancer after surgical resection without radiographic evidence of disease. And we can see that patients' tumor burden can be stratified into the following areas with patients with detectable imaging having a residual tumor burden, whereas those that have non-detectable imaging findings but tumor detected based on ctDNA are defined as tumors, uh, patients having minimal residual disease. There are a number of assays that we use to define post-op MRD status, and it has been shown that this really defines risk of relapse. Overall, in stage two colon cancer patients, the prevalence of ctDNA positivity by MRD assay is approximately 5% of patients are ctDNA positive, which confers a significantly inferior long-term prognosis compared with negative uh, MRD assay. In this stage three setting, it's been found that approximately 15% of patients in the post-operative setting have MR are positive for ctDNA, and if they are, they have a significantly inferior prognosis to negative ctDNA. There's currently approved MRD assays on the market include the Garden to Reveal assay. And here again, you can see a significant separation of risk of future relapse in patients that were ctDNA positive versus ctDNA ne negative. The uh, graph on the right describes uh, similar outcomes for patients that were Signatera DNA positive versus DNA negative. So there's been early proof of principle, and this has been recently re reported non-randomized data, but really looking at what the role is of giving patients that are MRD positive after surgery, giving them further chemotherapy. And the data so far suggests that if these patients are treated with further chemotherapy, a significant proportion of them can be cleared with favorable long-term prognosis. On the flip side of that, in the graph below documents patients that were MRD negative on a post-operative assay 
regardless of whether or not they're given chemotherapy, have very good outcomes. This has led to current and ongoing post-operative trials where we're exploring the role of using this marker as a way to decide on adjuvant chemotherapy. There's a, a trial for a stage two colon cancer where patients are randomized to either standard of care, which involves surveillance for most patients, or ARM2, where patients are offered the circulating tumor DNA assays and then treated accordingly. If the patients have no ctDNA detected, which is the majority of patients over 90%, they are offered active surveillance. However, if they're ctDNA positive, they're offered adjuvant chemotherapy with either a standard full FOX or standard K-box. A similar trial for stage three colon cancer patients in the post-operative setting has recently opened, and it's looking at a similar concept. This is for patients with predominantly stage three colon cancer. They're offered ctDNA testing, if the ctDNA is detected in the post-operative setting, the patients are randomized to either standard chemotherapy or a dose-escalated chemotherapy with full foxeary with three antineoplastic agents instead of two, with a, and full theory is an established regimen in the advanced setting. For patients that were ctDNA negative, they are randomized to either chemotherapy or surveillance with ctDNA alone. And if they do become positive in the future, they may cross over to receive chemotherapy, either standard or chemotherapy that is escalated. So overall, in conclusion, you know, please remember to start colorectal screening at age 45. Um, we have multiple screening options available. Liquid assays may soon be approved, but they are not yet standard. Patients with rectal cancer should be referred to centers of expertise, in my opinion. Circulating tumor DNA assays can inform post-operative therapy, and treatment de-escalation trials are underway. So I think we think we have, um, thank you for your attention. I think we have some, some time for questions. We do indeed. We do indeed. Thank you very Thank much you. for that talk, Dr. Kenneke. Um, Really exciting to be here to learn about important cutting edge work in this field. Um, I'll begin with a few questions from our audience. Uh, first off, uh, a question regarding screening. Do you have a sense of whether it is better to use a stool-based test uh, that looks just for hemoglobin or one that also includes altered DNA. And Dr. Kenneke, I think you're on mute. Yep, thanks. I'm muted. Correct. So the short answer is we don't know what is better. They have not been compared head to head. The uh, certainly the the most evidence lies with the the most prospective evidence lies with the stool-based blood tests. Well, that is generally because the large, the large trials that initially documented the efficacy of screening really were based on the FIT test. So 
Overall, we know that patients have a choice. We don't know which one is better, but either one is, is a reasonable one to offer to patients. Thank you. Um, next question, uh, what lifestyle changes or dietary changes might be proven helpful in colon cancer or colorectal survivors? So you know, this really relates into you know, secondary prevention. You know, patients have already had a malignancy. You know, what is the role of dietary changes? So we don't have any, any uh, level one evidence to, to really support either any dietary changes and their role that they may have. I tell my patients to pursue a, a diet that is high in fiber and low in fat. I do counsel them to avoid red meat and processed meat or at least minimize it. We know that the average age of patients developing colon cancer is, is getting lower and you know many are diagnosed now in their 50s so they have another 30 years to develop a, a, you know a second malignancy and a second colorectal malignancy so the, the val there is value in in dietary changes even after the diagnosis thank you um, and perhaps just to follow up on that, um, is there a sense of epidemiologic reasons uh, why we're seeing the lower age of diagnosis? That is a great question. So we know it's it's happening, and the you know overall the patients aged less than fifty, there has been overall a estimated thirty percent increase in the incidence. Overall, the incidence is low. But you know, there we do see a market increase in it. We, you know, from a, you know, is we don't know what 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 that's due to. Uh, we don't know whether it's you know the diet, the increased use of antibiotics, changing the biome, the high meat consumption likely has, you know, is contributed to you know a richer Western diet. We don't have good genomic markers. There's some hint. That that tumors that uh, in patients aged uh, less than 50 are slightly genomically different than age greater than 50. However, uh, overall, we don't have any concrete causes that we can point to that are driving these trends. Thank you for your thoughts. Um, Another question, um, returning to discussion of circulating tumor DNA, um, very interesting to learn about its current use um, in patients who have been treated with surgery for known cancers. Um, regarding potential future year use as a screening modality, um, I noticed in at least one study there was a positive predictive value of only 45%. Um, can you comment on any concerns for false positive tests um, and, and downstream testing? What do you see in the future of circulating tumor DNA as a screening modality? I think overall, you know, the positive aspect of the assays, of the MCAT assays, are that they are, the false, the, they are, there are high false negatives but false positives are very low at a rate of about 0.7%. So that is really 
the limitations of them are the, the false negative rates. And I think what we're going to see when they are introduced is that they're going to become an additional way that we add to to a screening as a and you know we continue with our standard modalities. We continue with the colorectal cancer screening, but uh, that we with their either endoscopy or or fit test or otherwise. But we layer these assays on top of. Uh, of the standard screening modalities. That is generally how they're being developed. So I suspect that that is how they're going to be approved. Great, thank you. Um, and thanks for inclusion uh, of the work regarding um, targeting screening uh, among at-risk and diverse populations. I wondered if you could tell us just a bit more about that grant work um, and uh, the uh, interprofessional group uh, being developed for screening outreach. Yeah, absolutely. This is that the interventions will initially be in the Los Angeles area, and this is a partner initiative with us as well as St. John's in uh, Santa Monica, and and really the impetus was that you know, the, the, the presence of colorectal cancer screening, particularly after the uh, pandemic and during the pandemic, has really fallen to, uh, to much lower than it should be. That's led to initiatives to secure funds and the, the application with Stand Up to Cancer was successful. And that really has led to a, a study that we're trying to figure out what is the best way to increase awareness and ultimately increase screening. So as you can see, we need lots of patient engagements and to design the study. We That includes uh, statisticians, gastroenterologists, and overall what, what we wanna see, we don't have a randomized trial, but we wanna see before and after this intervention that with chat teams, community access teams, whether that can improve the, the screening rate. If that study is positive and we do see a increase before and after of screening, this would be a model that we would use to roll out to other communities that Providence serves. Great, thank you. Um, have just a, a few remaining moments. Um, another question here, does vitamin D deficiency play a role in colon cancer? The short answer is we don't know. There's you know, been a lot of questions asked about vitamin D in multiple tumor settings. None of them have been positive so far. I know of one that, at least one that was negative, in, in, including a, a study that used vitamin D to potentiate the use of chemotherapy in patients getting uh, a chemotherapy in the non-curative setting. And that actually led to worse outcomes so, you know, look, vitamin D is, is important. We, you know, there's, there's now guidelines that, that recommend up to 5,000 IU a day, but we try to keep it to 1,000. I generally counsel my patients to not take excessive doses. And I have had one patient that had uh, hypercalcemia as a result of, of very high doses of vitamin D intake. 
Great, thank you for those comments. I know certainly in the general internal medicine and primary care world, we have seen patients with vitamin D toxicity and hypercalcemia, so important to be aware of. Um, I think I'll just make one uh, point of clarification here for uh, a question that came through regarding recommendation for Cologuard. Again, I think this is a DNA-based stool test, which is acceptable for screening, um, though uh, fit testing, uh, stool-based blood test is probably the most researched and is also acceptable. And I believe we have gotten through our queue of questions. Um, so thank you so much, Dr. Kennecke, not only for this talk, but uh, for joining us here at Providence in the last year. Uh, it's really fantastic to have your expertise. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be involved and look forward to meeting everyone in person. Great, thank you. Take care. We will okay. see everyone next week for our annual Claven Lectureship. Take care.